It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My first guest today is here to talk about the business of cannabis. Jay Rosenthal has a 20-year career at the intersection of media, business, politics, and policy, especially as it relates to heavily regulated industries. Rosenthal provides context and insight into the dynamic and ever-changing landscape of the Canadian cannabis sector. That's, that's very true. It is ever-changing right now, that's for sure. So we'll get into some of that, but let me tell you a little bit more about Jay Rosenthal. He is a sought-after media commentator on cannabis-related issues. He's got a background in government. He launched several successful startups before launching Business of Cannabis. He began his career in the U.S. Capitol, working for United States Senator Barbara Boxer, and he moved to the Bay Area in the 90s. It keeps going, folks. Uh, He also founded a strategic communications firm that worked with Fortune 500 companies and directed special projects at Public Inc., a social impact marketing agency where he led two separate Public Health Agency of Canada-funded projects focused on workplace health and wellness. And in 2019, Business of Cannabis was awarded the Best News Source at the O'Cannabis Industry Awards. Jay, welcome, and that's quite the resume. Thank you. I'd like to cap that and send it to my mom. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, it's great that you're here. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, and of course, a very timely subject. I think so. Yeah, I like <laughs> talking about cannabis. I've always liked talking about cannabis. It's nice that someone, people are finally listening here. Uh, why, why do you like talking about cannabis? Uh, I've always liked cannabis, not to be uh, uh, flip, but I've always mm-hmm. liked cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young person, as an old person, <laughs> everywhere in between, I have liked it. Um, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time in mm-hmm. California. It's certainly part of the culture there. Sure. Um, and some of the sort of biggest grassroots movements around cannabis legalization have started in the Bay Area, you know, from the 60s till now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was always interesting to me watching that develop. When I got to Canada in 2013, 2012, 2013, this was moving, right? Things were happening that um, there was certainly a medical program mm-hmm. at that time. But around 13 and 14, this is when actually the regulations changed from Health Canada and real companies started to develop on the Canadian cannabis side, which opened up public markets, right? And, and the companies got big and now some of them are huge. That was an interesting evolution. Um, but it was also interesting, I think, from a societal level to see the difference in stigma mm. between what was happening in the states which was really voter-driven in California and Colorado for legalization versus here, which was really legislative. Mm. Uh, and it was really led from the top and sort of said, we're going to legalize this for a whole variety of reasons. It, the stigma of those two different ways to go about it is really different, mm. right? If it's, a, if it's a movement of voters, that's one way to go about it. And we've seen that in California and Colorado. When states in the U.S. have gone about it from a legislative perspective, it's much more heavily regulated and I think gains a lot more traction among everyday folks that have no interest in cannabis at all, other than they think they'd like to wipe out the black market. They think they would like to have a regulated industry. They think it's good medicine, Mm. maybe, right? So there's different approaches that the U.S. has taken state by state and sort of voter-driven as opposed to here, which is really legislative. And the stigma attached to each of those is quite different. And sort of understanding those different approaches and how it affects people's view of cannabis overall, cannabis as medicine, and industry developing is quite different. And I think we've seen that even sort of fast forward till now. Uh, we have a friend in town from California where it's been legal for a year and a half and certainly part of the culture out there. There's still a stigma around cannabis use in many respects. 
And here, of course, there still is, but I think it's less. Mm. I actually think our approach, and, and maybe there's something uniquely Canadian about our relationship with cannabis, and it's not a big deal. Um, but but there is a big difference in sort of how Canadians look at cannabis and how we've legalized it versus what's happened state by state in the U.S. And sort of understanding all that has been a great joy to sort of understand, learn about, and talk about. Well, it sounds like you have a, maybe a bit of a of an eye into the state side. So, mm-hmm. how, what's your per- perspective on what they're viewing? Uh, from the North in yep. terms of what Canada is doing. So there is something uniquely American about not caring about the rest of the world and how they're <laughs> approaching things. So I think they're, and I'm American, I can say that. And especially, I, I mean, it seems like every time I say it, I'm like, well, I mean today, but I've actually meant the past three, four <laughs> years and maybe much longer in history too. So, so there's a bit of that. They don't actually look here and say, that's great. Uh, except what we have done well in the Canadian side is legalized it federally both uh, from a medical perspective early on and, and now from, from adult use recreational perspective, which did one really important thing that the industry will look back on as really a seminal moment when this thing takes over the world, that legalization is no longer an issue. And that is it opened up capital markets mm. for these companies, which some of them are really capital intensive. Like to open up a heavily regulated compliant business that is on the cannabis front, and especially on the cultivation side, where you actually have to grow cannabis, it takes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., the banking is still not done. You can't go public if you're a Canadian, er, an American cannabis company in the U.S., but there's lots of American cannabis companies that are public in downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. They've gone public on the uh, Canadian Securities Exchange. Right. right. People call it the Cannabis Securities Exchange <laughs> sometimes. There's lots and lots, dozen scores mm. of cannabis companies, both Canadian and American, that have gone public here, which is a great boon to can- Canadian mm-hmm. business for sure, mm-hmm. but also... Um, not unlike mining uh, in their previous sort of decades, is if the money is flowing through Canada, that's a good thing. Mm. Um, We can debate that. But I think um, the markets here have actually been really conducive to to cannabis companies. And I think the American companies see that and say, goodness, if we could just do that in New York, A, we could raise more money, but also it would gain a lot of legitimacy in the U.S. But um, I I guess that's why I was was asking, because of exactly that reason about money speaks loud and the states of course likes money Uh, and and so that's why i was wondering if they were taking more notice than usual of what's going on up here they are and i think it's um and and also the state-by-state approach that the u.s has taken it really hamstrings a company right if you're if you have grand visions to create a u.s-based brand and an infrastructure to support that brand having a state-by-state approach is awful Right, you can't even cross state lines with right. the product. Yeah, right. So your brand right. can transcend. Like yeah. MedMen is a national brand. They call them MSOs, multi-state operators, as mm-hmm. opposed to like a Canadian, like a U.S. company, but it's MSOs. And there's MedMen facilities, sort of dispensaries, in a variety of states, for sure. But they're not moving product in between those states. So they're really one-offs in each state, mm-hmm. and that's not a great way to start or run a business, especially if you have global aspirations and need lots of capital to do that. But you know, the infrastructure is really challenging to do. So it, they've their fractured market is really challenging for them, whereas the market here is not quite as big, but at least it's it's stable. The regulations are the same across the country and all those things. So um, it's created a nice playing field here for the Canadian companies and some of the U.S. companies to go public. But Canada has a lead in many ways. I think it's going to be challenging to keep that lead as more and more states and certainly the U.S. is eyeing more normalized banking regulations for cannabis. Mm. Uh, the voice you're, you just heard is Jay Rosenthal. He's the co-founder and president of Business of Cannabis. And uh, what, Jay, what you were just talking about there uh, in terms of the business, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I was thinking about is, as, as in Canada, with, with new businesses starting with those opportunities, and, and you know, I don't know if, if this is playing into it, but I'm, I'm hoping it is, because 
of how our world is becoming more and more aware environmentally and about what we are doing to the planet. Because this is a new industry, is do you, from your perspective, do you know if, if people are looking at this a little differently and saying, let's do this right now without destroying it, or is it the same old kind of, you know, just same old? Uh, yes and yes. Mm. <laughs> so some people are saying, let's do this differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way, let, let's take Canada first, right? So Canada said initially, all the cannabis being grown on the legal front needs to be grown inside, right? So either in an c- enclosed building or a greenhouse. With either one of those things where we live in Canada, like the, the energy costs, mm. you know, the footprint is huge. Energy costs and water and then wastewater. All those things are just astronomical. Mm. They've just opened it up with this past season. There's some outdoor growing. So, which is a much smaller footprint. There's no lights, right? The energy comes from the sun. I mean, those things. So, so in some respects, some people are doing a great thing, but also it's a business imperative, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have electricity cost, cost a fortune or else your business can't run. You can't right. sell profitably. Similarly with water, water's expensive. Wastewater, you know, is, yep. is awful. Um, but, but there was a story about a month and a half ago, and this, this gets directly to your point. The governor of Illinois, which legalized cannabis, it's coming up, uh, I think, January 1st, um, is mandating limits on energy and water usage for cannabis growing. Mm-hmm. Because they've seen in Colorado, the, the costs are enormous in terms of energy use, the draw for these growing. If that was the mandate of Health Canada to say, you actually have to cap mm. your energy use and water use, it would send shockwaves to this industry, I think in a positive way to say, you have to do this more efficiently. Mm. And how do you do it more efficiently? Figure it out, mm. you, industry. Mm. Um, but it is a major concern for environmental environmentalists for sure. But it's also an imperative for the businesses because they need to figure out how to run profitably and energy costs, you know, some of these growths is costing a million dollars a month right, right. in terms of energy costs. So so, yeah. so that, that leads into technology, yeah. right? And I believe that's something you guys have coming up at yeah. the end of the, uh, this yeah. week. It's yeah. a cannabis and technology uh, uh, symposium of yeah. some kind or something? Yeah. So we, very early on, so 2017 when we started talking about cannabis, we didn't, we knew very little. We knew some about cannabis, but not about the industry that was developing. And it was interesting for us to see uh, first, about the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that was evolving around this industry, which is not super Canadian, right? There's not a lot. This is a fairly risk-averse country and biz- from money to business to sort of personal mm-hmm. lives. Um, but the entrepreneurial spirit that was happening in this part of the world, this part of the, the economy is really compelling, whether it was sort of big downtown lawyers who were like, I don't care what my partners say, I'm going to practice cannabis law, or I have a piece of land or a building and I mm-hmm. want to grow cannabis mm-hmm. or somewhere in between. But was tying all those things together was technology. Because of Health Canada regulations suggesting that every plant basically needed a barcode from the wow. second it gets planted all the way till you get it at your house as medicine needed to be tracked, right? It's called seed to sale tracking, right? So everything along the way needed to be tracked. Every company that does this in other industries, pharma or agriculture in some way, was not touching cannabis at the time. But then a whole infrastructure in Canada developed to do it to be compliant with Health Canada, to help businesses run. That was one of our earliest conversations. And actually, the company we talked to earliest is actually not far uh, from here, Ample Organics on Eastern Avenue. So it was one of the companies that developed to sort of serve that need, the technological need of the industry. And that's sort of on the beginning end, sort of growing all the way to, to sort of sales. But along the path, there's new extraction technologies, there's new pro- processing and manufacturing technologies to create edibles and beverages and all those things. There are uh, consumer-facing technologies. There's a company called StrainPrint, which is, I like to say, sort of the Fitbit for cannabis. Like it helps you use cannabis better, mm. but also aggregating that data can actually say, oh, we know how people are using cannabis for migraines if you are over a 50-year-old man. Oh, that's great for both the patients to say, oh, I'm a 50-year-old man and I want to find cannabis that works for me. I'll go to this app and find it. But also from an industry perspective, we say, look, if we really want to create the best 
medicine for someone who's over 50 male that has migraines. Now we see what's working, right? So all the way from the earliest days of cultivation all to consumer-facing technology or patient-facing technology is developing in Canada. And while the, it's a very expensive place to grow cannabis in Canada, but the rest of the world is looking at that technological infrastructure to sort of cut and paste in their own jurisdictions. And so we, early on, said we want to focus a whole day on this thing mm. because cannabis and technology at all the other big conferences, both here and around the world, it's two or three panels and within the context of a major event. We really wanted to hyper-focus one day, and we've seen it's going to be Friday. It's going to be at the Steam Whistle Brewing mm -hmm. in downtown Toronto. But the idea that you could track the entire supply chain of cannabis through the lens of cannabis and technology was really interesting to us back in 2017. The idea that it's now sort of booming is great. Um, and, and we've also seen that the, the idea of cannabis and technology sort of overlaying on, on top of each other is important not only to the industry, but it is what's driving the Ontario Cannabis Store, for example. So the wholesale distributor of cannabis, but also the online sales of cannabis in Ontario, is really driven by technology. Um, similarly, all the point-of-sale systems at the retailers now, there's 25 retailers in Ontario, soon there'll be 75. Um, that's all being driven by technology too, because it needs to be compliant. Mm -hmm. It needs to be transparent to Health Canada and other regulators. But also from an industry perspective, we want to know what people are buying, why they're buying it, when they're buying it, Sometimes who's buying it, right? Because that helps serve the consumers better. Um, and those are just in their infancy, this technology that exists in other sectors, but is just now being overlaid in cannabis. And that's exciting to be part of it. And we want to help sort of shine a light. But also new methods of extraction, new methods of processing, manufacturing that, that make cannabis medicine easier to deliver and maybe more accessible to folks, whether it's a capsule or something else. But also I think we're going to see unlike in other places, cannabis beverages, which take technology. Like th mm. there's lots of places where technology is inter interfacing with cannabis and we're going to do a whole day focused on that. We have the, the executive in charge at Shoppers Drug Mart who handles the medical cannabis file there coming to speak because he has viewed sort of the interplay of cannabis technology as something vital to them as a responsible business to offer medical cannabis. They want to know where it came from, whose hands touch it, what it's doing, what the profile is, and all that is based on tech, Right. Um, so that, that's one thing. There's also, you know, there's been a real reluctance among Canadian doctors to recommend cannabis for their patients. And there's a great company called HelloMD, which is a web portal that you go in and you do a consult with a doctor. You learn all the things there are to know about medical cannabis. You consult mm -hmm. a doctor and they'll find you medical cannabis through shoppers. So it, it, it really, a lot of this is both developing because there was a need and because there was developing, which was around a gap. And that's where really great innovation has happened you know, certainly you can point to many, many examples over the past 30 years as technology has really become part of our daily lives. Now, you just, you just brought up uh, uh, doctors being reluctant. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, is, is there a gap at this point in terms of the, and you, you, just, you alluded to this, uh, through our medical practitioners who haven't got the, not only experience, but knowledge yeah. of these things yeah. uh, that probably they're starting to learn about now. Um, and in a few years that uh, doctors coming out to, that will know about this stuff. And, I, you know, if, I'm guessing if, if a doctor doesn't have that knowledge, they're not going to recommend it. It's true. There are some doctors that will. Uh, both uh, Many believe it shouldn't be a medicine of last resort, but first resort. Mm. We know the, the um, side effects of cannabis are far less, mm. if at all, vis-a-vis mm. -vis other pain medications, for example, other sleep medications. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're learning these things now. But what doctors are very good at and have been trained over the past hundred years is there is a drug. 
Here's the me- here's the dosage you need to prescribe to your patients. Here's the- here's how the patients are supposed to take it. It treats these 17 indications. Now that's how you prescribe it. Right. Cannabis isn't like that. Certainly, the system's not set up for that. It's much more, especially now. I'm your doctor. You're coming in to see me. I recommend cannabis, but there's no dosage I can recommend. There's no right. product I can recommend. Right. I could recommend dry flour, which you combust and inhale, but th- doctors are very uncomfortable with that too. So there's lots of gaps. Right. And so it's a very challenging environment to be a doctor in the space and to, and to convince other doctors to do it. But there's also an incentive for doctors not to send people away, right? Mm-hmm. This is the incentive in Ontario, certainly, that doctors shouldn't, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be saying no and then you go find your own doctor. There's this, I don't know, quality of care, sort of full circle care that they should be recommending specialists to you to, to talk to and they, there's benefit to them as well. I mean, there's lots of different sort of financial incentives to actually treat patients. So it's changing, changing slowly, but I think what we will see, I don't know if the horizon is a year, three, five, ten, but I think you'll see the normalization of cannabis as medicine. And what, am I, what I mean by that is you go to your doctor, your doctor recommends something, you go pick it up at Shoppers mm. in, in store. I think that normalization will change doctors' minds considerably because there's no other medication that I recommend to you than you go to the actual uh, cannabis company and get it directly. Like That's not how most medicines work, and until or unless it does, I think we'll see reluctance on the uh, part of doctors. But I think things are changing. Shoppers' entrance into the market is changing. More education for doctors. But what is really compelling from my perspective is that this is really a patient-driven effort. Patients going to their doctor or seeking out a doctor to get their which happens very infrequently. When it does happen, it's usually for nefarious reasons, patients seeking out doctors. But I think you've seen this patient movement to say, I have an indication that is a migraine. I, ha- I can't sleep. I have long-term pain. I have anxiety. All of these things people want to treat through cannabis, and so they're pushing their doctors or a doctor to recommend it for them. Uh, there are so many uh, things that come to mind in terms of cannabis, you know, um, and, the, and the things, even this, this business, this cannabis and technology event that you're going to be holding. Mm-hmm. Who, who's coming to that? Like, Yeah. It's a good question. And, and you know, we, we are still in startup mode. We started in 2017. So um, sometimes we don't know. We put things out there and people respond. Uh, we know because now it's a week, it's less than a week away and we've seen who's coming. About a third of the people are roughly cannabis technology people. So they either work for cannabis technology companies or are part of our sort of program or our partners or, or presenting. That's probably a third of them. A third are cannabis industry people, non-tech related. So they work for licensed producers or some other manufacturer or a retailer. So they're, they're involved in the industry some way, want to see what's out there. And another third, and this is interesting, are unrelated to, any of the, to either one of those two things. Mm-hmm. So they either work in tech or marketing or are business people in Toronto and saw this event and said, oh, that might they be interesting. They want to learn more. They want to learn more. And there's yeah. so much to learn, right? right, right. Uh, especially on this, this is sort of not the sexiest thing to learn about, right? The sexy thing is the big companies growing lots of cannabis selling in a store. And there's lots of conferences and expos mm. to learn about that. This isn't that. Mm-hmm. This is much more about the sort of infrastructure, the wiring that is that is driving the industry. And so, so we have about a third, a third, a third. Um, and we're going to have probably 20, not 250 people there. If it's 250, we're going to be really crowded. But 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 that it's trending towards that. We're over 200 now. So okay. So yeah. so within that breakdown, how many people are coming from Canada yeah. or? Outside of the Canada? Uh, I would say, that's a good question. I'm sure I could pull the matrix, but I would say probably 50 to 60% are Toronto specific because that's where this is the hub of, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the hub of Canadian cannabis cultivation, but certainly the business component of it is, right. is based in downtown Toronto or around the GTA. We probably have uh, 
a good chunk, 15, 20%. Now I'm going to, you're going to test my math. 15 to 20% coming from somewhere else in Canada, but a lot coming from sort of BC. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some interesting companies out there, especially on the extraction side of things. And then uh, we probably do have some folks coming in from the US. Uh, and a lot of the tech people are here for a different conference earlier in the week. I think Elevate mm-hmm. yeah. starts this week. Yeah. So it's coincidental, but I like to say that they're not focusing on cannabis and tech enough. So we're going to do an event on Friday and sort of end cap the week. That's a good messaging from our perspective, but but I do think there's some people sticking, staying on. Just we know this from sort of where they're coming from through our web analytics and the tickets they're buying and where their sort of address is. But so we we think there's probably it's it's highly Canadian, but so is the tech, the big tech around it. Because in the states, being a big tech company in the cannabis space is not you're in one state or two states. It's not. I mean, there are some that's sort of broad based, but really we're we quite like helping promote the Canadian version of that. Mm. Jay Rosenthal is my guest today on Moment of Truth, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Jay is the co-founder and president of Business of Cannabis. Jay, I want to go back to uh, talking about Ontario and uh, and the store rollout and, and the loss of, of money in the first year. That uh, Now, uh, apparently other provinces are doing well. Better, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, want more? So, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, I mean, Alberta's the doing the best, uh, almost without question. They've licensed over 300 stores. They're opening every day. There's 57 in the city of Calgary. That's a lot. That's not a lot. That's, that's what's serving the population of 1.4 right. million people. Um, Ontario, we have a huge population. We have 25 stores. Five are in Toronto, the biggest city. Like, we're doing a, a, a not a great job. I'm going to pick my words carefully. We're doing a not a great job. We've done two lotteries, one at the beginning of the year, one later in the year. We're supposed to have stores opening up in October, the next round of 50. It's still not enough. Mm-hmm. The distribution is uneven. Um, it's not great. And yeah. But some of the stores that have them are right. wonderful, right? Sure. I mean, uh, but it's, it's still such a limited opportunity for folks. And what we've seen uh, both in Alberta and other places, if you allow more retail, it drives out the black market. That's sort of a – there's a one-for-one. One. If you open more stores, more people are willing to go buy cannabis, right? So – you know, there, there's lots of numbers baked into that. And, and, and in fairness to the province, um, those numbers only represent numbers before there are any stores. So that was the, they lost $42 million in the first fiscal year of legal cannabis. But that fiscal year ended March 31st, 2019. The first stores, sort of bricks and mortar stores in Ontario, only opened April 1st. So the numbers don't – it's a terrible headline. Mm-hmm. But I think – We've probably turned the corner already right. unknowingly right. about where expenses, startup expenses and revenue intersect. And I think we're going to see lots more revenue in year two. Every time more stores open, that number changes dramatically. And if we are at 100 plus stores, hopefully maybe closer to 200 at, at the end of this fiscal year, so next May 31st, 2020, we're going to see a lot more sales. Yeah, no. And speaking of stores, the retail stores, um, this is basically the recreational side of cannabis, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which which is 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 there a difference in in the the benefit side of of this I guess and the business side mm-hmm. from the investment perspective is the medical side doing better uh, is, you know what's the and how how do we break that down when you when you, we talk about cannabis are we talking about just cannabis or are we talking about uh, you know, breaking that down, the CBD oils, all those other things. What's... So um, the, on the medical side of things here in Canada, it's a direct relationship generally between a patient and their licensed producer, which are the people that are actually growing the cannabis. That's a very good business for those licensed producers to have a one-on-one relationship with their patients. They're basically cutting out any middleman in most mm. cases. It's a very good business. And up until recently, that was driving nearly all of their business. Um, now, companies that have a, an ambition to build brand, so to be the next Coca-Cola or Budweiser or 
take your pick, of cannabis, they've really entered the recreational space. Some of them are doing both. So some companies are, they have a medical program and they have brands that they're selling through the, you know, the Ontario Cannabis Store or other places. And they're trying to do both things. There are some that are strictly medical and you probably haven't heard of them because they're not as big a brand, right? They're not as big names, but they are serving a number of patients, whether it's 1,000 or 10,000 adequately in, in many cases. So there's some that are doing both, some that are only doing medical, and some that are really only doing recreational, mm. right? Uh, they only want to create brands, which is a totally respectable business. It's just really challenging when you have limited supply of products available. So the other part of the number that Ontario came out with is there's only really two things on the shelves right now. There's dry flour and a number of varieties, a number of sizes of weights, but it's all dry flour, right? It's the bud you crush up, you smoke in a joint, or you smoke in a bowl. Like that's what's available and oils, which people, I like them, but people aren't loving them. Mm. Um, so there's only really those two things. When you look at other markets, California and Colorado, they have all kinds of things on the shelves. They have beverages, they have vape pens, um, they have edibles, right? They have a lot of things that consumers desperately want. And we've seen in California and Colorado, it's, it's 40, 50% of the market share. So in Canadian landscape, we don't even have those products available. Mm. So yeah, people are buying cannabis at the, at the stores, but they're only buying limited supply of a limited sort of variety. And, and until or unless we have more stores, until or unless we have more product on the shelves, more varieties, more form factors, we're never going to catch up to the black market. But Health Canada's intent was never to create an industry, they'll tell you every day, was to create a legal framework upon which you know, we could wipe out the black market, keep out of the hands right. of kids, all those things. So we're getting there. We're getting there really slowly. Uh, but we'll get there, I think. Is there a, a, a variation in the price from province to province? Yes. Uh, and actually, McLean's just came out with a story where they analyzed both the supply that each province was getting and the price, average price of it. Yes. Um, the bigger provinces have much more bargaining power to get the initial wholesale price down, which they can then offer to retailers at a lower price and the retailers can mark up whatever they want, but they need to be competitive or else people won't buy it. So bigger provinces, it's less expensive, but I think that's probably true for any anything yeah. that you buy. Right? Just, and, yet, and yet, you know, even though you're saying that, we hear stories about how the black market is still <laughs> underselling uh, Quite considerably, I sure. understand. It's pretty easy to do. Yeah. You have no regu- you're, you're not paying taxes. There's no regulatory <laughs> thing. And I think importantly, and I'm not, I, you know, the, the legacy market has done incredible things, including make it, making it legal. Mm. Right? They've been mm. driving this for a long time. Um, they don't have the regulatory framework, taxes, those things. But they also, some of their cannabis is unbelievably good, like mm. unbelievably good. They've got the genetics. They've been growing it for a long time. Mm. They have no interest in joining the legal market, right. full stop. Right. And when you get it, it's not quality assured the way the legal cannabis is, right? You know, it, I don't know if they're using pesticides. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know any of those right. things. I know that when I buy it in the store, it's right. been checked every yep. which way to Tuesday, right? So there is a big difference in the product um, quality assurance. <laughs> there may be also a big, pro- big difference in the quality mm. where the black market may be quite better, right? right? But, but it is this <laughs> idea that quality assurance plus the regulatory environment plus the legal market adds cost to it. Of course it does. But that'll also even out. And I think we'll also see... When new products come online, they're much uh, more favorable to the industry to make. What mm. I mean by that is if you're making an edible out of distillate, right, you've, you've squashed it all down, you've made it component parts, you put them back together in a chocolate, that's a better thing to sell from a business perspective than dry flour in a can. It just is. Speaking of, of edibles and those mm. kind of things. Yeah. I'm uh, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was, there, there's been a few stories about, you know, when I think of, for instance, gummies, that could be misconstrued as as child mm-hmm. candies, yeah, uh, and that's been a, somewhat of an issue. Uh, what's your take on how we approach the edibles and to make sure that 
they don't get into the wrong hands of, yeah. of youth that you could damage them. And, well, uh, Health Canada is doing a pretty good job in sort of um, mandating and then they're making decisions on what is and what is not interesting to children, right? Mm. So I think we'll see some chocolates. I think we won't see gummies. So there's a, there's a differentiation there. Um, the packaging is still going to be fairly robust in terms of uh, child mm. proof. Um, and then there's the responsibility of people, mm. right? Um, and whenever I get this question, I don't like to deflect it because I think it's an important conversation. And if your kid ate a you know a 10 milligram gummy, he's, he or she is going to be not feel good. They're going to be okay. They're not going to overdose, but they're going to they're going to feel the effects for sure, just as you or I would, um, but more sustained because mm-hmm. they're smaller. Right. Um, at the same time, we have basically no regulations about that with vodka, which is clear, <laughs> looks like water, and yep. is, doesn't even have a childproof cap, mm. right? And we do deal with that too all the time. And so, I, and then I like, and I think it came up last week, when you think about cannabis, it's new, right? So you think about all the regulations around it, right? We want, we want it to be childproof. We want the stores to be 19 plus. We want, we want, we want. And then you look at alcohol, mm-hmm. which has been around a lot longer or legal a lot longer, and we have none of those things. I bring my kids into the LCBO. All, they can't touch anything. Right. Bring them into the LCBO right. all the time. There's advertising literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you can get it in a restaurant. You can get it in a store. And some provinces and even part like get it in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And some provinces here you get it in a corner store, right? So the idea – same thing with cigarettes, right? I mean, uh, But the idea that, that there's, this is a product that is more harmful than any of those things I think is debatable but pr- also – not debatable. I don't think it is. Uh, many more problems caused by alcohol. I mean, th- these things are well documented uh, for a long time. Um, so, so we're 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 in this really interesting not social experiment. Is probably too strong a word, but but we are addressing, I think, a lot of our preconceived notions about a lot of the things that are legal and not legal, marketing, not marketing, and where and how you can access things. And in the long history of things, I mean, Ontario's history is, you know, very specific stories for very specific things, be it alcohol or cannabis in this case. I think we'll get to a point where some of these things start to break down. I think we'll see CBD-based products on the shelves in a shopper's much much sooner than we will see like a cannabis store that looks like co- co-located with an LCBO. Mm-hmm. Would you say Canada is still on that forefront as a, as a leader in this industry? We are in so much as that we have a federal policy that's legalized it. So mm-hmm. in that respect, we are very far ahead of where most places are, certainly far ahead of where the U.S. is. Europe isn't even considering adult use recreational. Everything they're talking about is medical. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing in South America. I mean, most of these places are strictly talking about medical cannabis. Um, some of them are just talking about being a hub for cultivation, not even legalizing it in their own communities. So it's we are in the forefront in many, many ways. But the biggest way we are is the companies here have lots of money. Mm-hmm. I don't I mean I don't mean to sort of get into the green of it, but like they they really do. They're well capitalized and they're looking for expansion. And there are, we joke, there's sort of world domination on their mind. They they want to create the next Budweiser. They want to be the next, you know, Pfizer. Like they really want to Right. Yeah. It's interesting you 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 say that because it, it takes me back to what I remember about uh, all the talk, all the hype about when when it was going to be legalized, and you know, uh, and and to some degree, I still see that. You know, we we talked a little bit earlier uh, before we we started the the interview about uh, schools that are now coming out with courses that people can take about the business and getting into cannabis and and those kind of things, growing it. And there's they sound really good on some of these courses that are being now offered, but I I can't help but. But think about the image. I still think of this because it, uh, and I want to ask you about where you think this industry is now sitting in terms of, if, is it still a budding industry? How far into that 
that market have we gone to say it, it's no longer a budding industry? You know, it's developed into something. But I keep seeing these guys just rubbing their hands. <laughs> you know, right? oh man, this is this is you know we got to get into this. And it seems like everybody, right? Everybody wants to get in on the ground floor of this. Well, the ground floor in some of these places has moved up to the first or <laughs> yeah. second floor. Yes, but but. I do think as we would see with technology or life sciences or, or anything or advertising, mm. right? It, it is here and it's new and it's exciting and there was lots of money to make and maybe there still is, right? Yes. Um, but also I do believe it's a real industry, mm. right? Because it's not just people in grow houses growing cannabis. That is certainly part of it and that needs lots of employees and it's, some of it's very highly skilled work and it's going to be year-round because he's in, indoors they're growing it year-round. So that, that is certainly part of it. There's also, you know, lab techs. Um, research, uh, processing, manufacturing, uh, really there, any part of the industry, any part of the country's economic infrastructure will be touched in some way by cannabis, right? So yes, of course, it's uh, growing, but, but with growing and, and having a couple hundred employees in a location forever is a real economic impact in a positive sense. I think of Moncton, New Brunswick, we've been out there, Organogram, which is a big licensed producer, is based in, basically in downtown Moncton, New Brunswick. 750 employees, largest private employer in town, and going to be there for a long time and, mm. and a community that needs 750 jobs. But, and it's also big, right? But 750 jobs, maybe there's 1,200 people that are sort of touching it every day because their husbands, wives, spouses are going to the facility, right? The, the economic impact of 750 well-paying jobs forever is, is enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen it even in, in places much, not in downtown Moncton, but... Um, Kirkland Lake, Ontario, in northern Ontario, where my mother-in-law happens to be from, oh, yeah. uh, is a company, 48 North, that has yeah. a facility up there. You know, it's a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a, the company has spent a lot of money to build that facility. To, uh, shutting it down is not an option, right? They, they're going to grow there, right? And so there's, there's steady jobs, but they need to be highly skilled, quality assurance, techs, like all those things are there, from agricultural to sort of operations to management. And then you get into sort of new tech, right? There's the tech tech, sort of the back-end technology, which is you know, like systems analyst type of thing. Um, but also, uh, you know, a lot of retail jobs, right? 50 new retailers opening up in Toronto. If each of them hire, you know, 20 people, you know, beca- and, and then we multiply that by 10, it's a lot of jobs. Mm. Um, and unlike many retailers, um, people, even in California and Colorado, are not buying this product online necessarily. They're, they have questions, they want to learn about it, and they're going into a shop to do it. They're spending a lot of time doing it. So it needs highly skilled employees in those retail environments. And yes, of course, if you find the exact product you want, you can then buy it online. But increasingly, people are just want to go to the shop because it's an interesting shopping environment. And we've seen uh, in Ottawa, I know we're on in Ottawa, uh, there's a company, there's a retailer called Supret. Has, yes, of course, created an environment you can go buy cannabis. That's, that's the baseline. But they've really created an immersive retail experience where you go in, you feel like you're in somewhere special. You feel like you're doing something interesting and fun. And that gets people coming back. Right. You know, there's retail, the death of retail has been written about a million times, yet people still mm. like to go buy shoes at cool shoe stores and they like to buy cannabis at cool cannabis shops. And frankly, they like to buy alcohol at nice LCBOs. Mm. Right. I mean, those LCBOs, there's one on College Street downtown. It's, it's like the coolest environment you go buy. Right. So, like, I think the idea that you could create something that is um, consistent with the product you're selling, that gets people excited to go buy it and then buy it again, like, these are all things that do drive economies. And I think we're doing, a, in many respects, doing a good job doing that. We need to do a lot better. But we're seeing the seeds of something very, very interesting happening here. And 
that's exciting to sort of, well, certainly to talk about. That's my role. But Jay Rosenthal is the co-founder and president of Business of Cannabis. He has been my guest on this part of the show. You can find out more by going to their website at businessofcannabis.ca. They do have an event coming up, Cannabis and Technology, and that's going to be at the Steam Whistle Brewing Company in downtown Toronto on Friday, September 27th. And you can find out more by going to their website, as I mentioned. Jay, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for coming in and sharing your knowledge and experience and giving us some more insight into this uh, world of the cannabis. It was it a was pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. And uh, we're going to be right back after a break. So don't go away on Element FM and Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Jillian Pierce is part of an organization called Better Way Alliance, and she is a coordinator, spokesperson, business owner. And Better Way Alliance brings together business owners who value decent work for our bottom lines and the health of Canada's economy. Uh, We know it's smart to invest in workforce for greater productivity, loyalty, customer satisfaction, and that's why they have come together to share experiences and move economy forward on a better path of a minimum $15 basis for every employee. Jillian, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit about why this idea came to you and how it got started. It got started in 2017 when a few businesses came together in Ontario and decided to showcase the fact that many, many businesses support employee rights and support a $15 minimum wage for all, not only Ontario, but all of Canada. The reason we needed to come together, and we've grown since then to more than 60 businesses, social enterprises, and nonprofit partners, is because there is a narrative out there that businesses don't agree with the higher minimum wage. And there's this myth that most businesses want to lower the minimum wage, but that's not true. And in fact, more than 60% of businesses, small businesses, support the higher minimum wage. So we're out there paying a higher wage, supporting the $15 minimum, and and spreading the word that thousands and thousands of businesses across Canada are already doing so. Now, where where's the data that backs that up? That's great that that happens, that that's out there. Where's the data for that? So one of my favorite data sources, of course, is Statistics Canada, Mm. um, as well as some polling data that came out a couple of years ago on the subject. That's where the 60% number comes from. Mm -hmm. So the reason I believe that 60% plus of small businesses agree with a $15 minimum wage Mm. or higher is likely because most businesses already pay more than that. Mm. Most businesses aren't paying the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. So they're going to naturally agree and say, yes, we think everybody should have 15 because we're already paying, let's say, 20 or 25 mm-hmm. or 30. The The interesting thing about the minimum wage is who's most likely to pay it. So yeah. it's 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 actually not small businesses. And that's where the Statistics Canada data comes in. Large businesses, big, big businesses with more than 500 employees are actually five times likelier to pay minimum wage. So you have to ask yourself, who is pushing the anti-minimum wage agenda? It's most likely not small businesses. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was my next mm-hmm. question because you said small, medium business. And you didn't mention large business. Mm-hmm. What's, your, what's your thought on the reasons behind that? I think that large, large businesses 
do tend to more rely on a business model where there is a lot of turnover of staff. So they come and they go very quickly. They're not staying for months mm. or years. And they rely on a model where they're paying poverty wages, basically, the bare, bare, bare minimum. And they keep their staff in a very precarious position. So not all large businesses, but the ones that are speaking out against the $15 mm. minimum wage, I think are relying on that high turnover. So even though... Canadians know oh, it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I want to stop you. You said relying on that turnover. So it almost makes it sound like they, they're okay with that. They're okay with the turnover, that they're, they want to pay that minimum wage to keep their, um, you know, their bottom line low. <clears throat> but in doing so, uh, it goes counter to exactly what you're bringing forward with some of the statistics that if you want to keep people longer, it makes sense to to pay them more because, one, they'll be more satisfied as employees and you'll have a better working environment and a happier, happier general public, it sounds like, as well. Definitely. Absolutely. So, so I think small and medium businesses have figured that out. And it's a no-brainer that if you want to save money on turnover costs, which are very, very real and can run in the thousands of dollars per employee – you need to pay well and create a good job for them. I think some of the larger, more established businesses who are relying on poverty wages or the high turnover, it's just something they've been used to doing for a long time. And they are some of the richest companies in Canada. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily want to turn around and change that model. But we would love them to change that model because if you pay people well, they will stick around. So that, that brings up some other thoughts. Um, one is large companies, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this. Um, their structure, as you mentioned, the way they're set up, they have shareholders. And as we all know, large businesses uh, pay shareholders. And I'm just wondering, is that model uh, set up to help facilitate, you know, uh, paying out to, uh, you know, shoulder stocks are, are better because that that higher wage would impact, um, you know, their their bottom line and their their stocks and and hence their their, their shareholders um, who may be pressuring them for for other things. I think that's a great point. So, the the higher wage and keeping your staff around longer method and business model is more of a long term. So it's not a short term um, flattering look at the numbers. It's more of a long term game. So mm-hmm. over a period of six months or a year, I am sure when you pay people well, you have less turnover and you're saving money. But for shareholder reports, that might be a little bit too long of a time period than what we're used to. So it requires some creativity Mm -hmm. and some difficult conversation with boards and with shareholders. Mm -hmm. But I did notice um, a few weeks ago in the United States, the the business roundtable, this group of CEOs came together and it sort of hit the headlines that They were admitting that we need to look beyond immediate shareholder reporting. We need to look further and need to look at how our businesses can do good. So that was quite interesting that even some of the largest CEOs out there in the United States are talking about the need to to pay people properly. I don't know that they're there yet. I don't think they're implementing that yet, Mm. but they're starting to recognize the importance of doing that. And frankly, it, it does pay off in the longer term. It's just... It's a question of thinking further down the line than a month or two. Now, there's. I want to come. I want to 
get back to you in a moment and, and talk about why you felt it was important to start this yourself, even though, you know, you mentioned how it got started, but your personal involvement in that and getting it going. But the other thing that I, I kind of want to mention, and it's the cynical side of me, and the cynical side of me says that, that these large businesses want to keep people at working at that low wage. They, it's, it's a deliberate measure, you know? Um, they they want to keep you under the thumb kind of thing. I think that's a very interesting point. That brings up some classist classism issues mm. in society mm. that maybe those of us who are um, in, you know, the top 10 or 1% of income earners, mm. maybe they want to keep those of us who are in the bottom 20 to 30% of earners, keep them low, keep that income disparity that way. That's that's very possible as well. Yeah. So um, so then you said it started in 2017. and But why did you feel it was important to get involved with this? So I actually joined the Better Way Alliance. I didn't launch it. Okay. Um, we had some great other businesses, um, including um, Best Bargains Jewelry is a, is a jewelry manufacturer in Toronto. Uh, Preline Processing, Damon Star Enterprises, is a manufacturing company of steel steel parts in the Niagara region. Mm. Um, we had engineering consultants. We had uh, retailers. We had some really excellent founding members. Anyway, I came on board because I, I was running a business, um, a pet services company here in Toronto with a staff of 10. Mm. And I ran that business hearing other other large companies speak out in the media or even use small businesses to speak out in the media and say, no, 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 we cannot do a $15 minimum wage. And that didn't sound right to me. So I, I had to join up with the Better Way Alliance to add my voice to that. And we've only grown since then. Uh, I believe I mentioned we're more than 60 now. And there's just this groundswell of interest from business owners who want to be part of uh, the movement to uh, spread that word about how decent work and fair wages and decent wages, it is good for us as well. Like It's good for business. Mm. It's the right thing to do in society, but mm. it's also really good for business. So there's just a, a there's a movement right happening right now, like a mm. groundswell that I'm very happy to be a part of. If if I were a business owner and I am trying to take care of business, I'm trying to look after ordering. I'm trying to make sure and you know, depending on what kind of business you're in, whether it's service or or products or whatever it is, I can't imagine trying to worry about if if I'm not paying people a decent wage that they might leave at a moment's notice and oh, yeah. I'm short you know, I'm short-staffed, yeah. and now I've got that to worry about. Wouldn't it just make more sense to uh, have people that are happy working there and 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 take take that off of your plate so that you don't have to worry about that as much? I mean, those things will happen anyway. People are going to leave. They'll move on. But it might be less of a concern or a worry for you. Plus, doesn't it make it a better working environment for everyone to come in and, and see a smiling face that you're, you know you're – you're, you're, you're sharing an environment where people are enjoying themselves as well? It's definitely good for morale with the staff. And if you like sleeping at night as a business owner, meaning <laughs> if you don't like being stressed and you want to get in, you want to relax, uh, definitely you have to get in the mindset that you just, mm. that you just discussed, which is uh, thinking about abundance, thinking about how do I want my business mm. to succeed right. long term? How do I want to survive while I'm running this business? 
And that has to include having some good, good people who Mm. are close to you and who are willing to take things off your plate and who are willing to work really, really hard to make you successful. You know, and somebody out there might be saying, oh, that's easy to say, you know. I mean, we've got a bottom line to meet. We've got all this stuff. I've got bills to pay. I've got, you know, blah, 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 blah. Understood. Um, And and no one said it was going to be easy, right? But then again, uh, I guess nobody made you open up that business so it's about finding the right combination of of bills versus versus income and how to balance those things right definitely now the other thing i want to say is we talked about data earlier and about the the numbers that back that up but you've got people that have joined in support of this and i guess what can you what can you tell us about that side of it the, the results side of this the results are Really, really interesting. So one of our founding members, uh, Damon Starr in in Niagara, I mentioned him because he has spoken out extensively about not just joining up and founding, but reorganizing his entire business model. And he's been very outspoken in a way that a lot of people aren't because we don't always feel comfortable sharing that 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 data. Um, But he in the past hired a lot of temporary workers and he switched completely into hiring mostly uh, even living wage, which is even more than the 15 mm. uh, employees. And he saw his retention increase. Uh, he even saw his profit margins, which is at the end of the day, how you're measuring the success of your business. He saw them skyrocket from, I think it was a, on the smaller side, from 5% up to, I think, more than 20% if I have my numbers right. So that's a, that's at the end of the day, that's how you measure the success of your company. Mm. So we see that. Um, when I was running my pet services company, um, I, I run a, an IT company with my husband now. Um, but when I was running that pet services company, we offered paid sick days. And I was at first terrified to offer those. I thought, are people going to take them all the mm-hmm. time? And then mm-hmm. I'm going to be left with nobody to walk the dogs. Like, mm-hmm. it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And because they loved their jobs and they felt respected by me, they were very fair about when they took mm-hmm. those sick days. Mm-hmm. Of course, they took them when they needed to. But they certainly were not taking more than they needed. Mm-hmm. And I could feel that it was because they respected me. So there are tangential results. Um, your profit margins are going to increase as well when your customers are happier. Mm-hmm. And it's in business, like success is a bit of an ecosystem. There's no one answer to to your problems. You know, there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of uh, there's a web and ecosystem of things you have to work on. But generally speaking, if your customers are happier, you'll see an increase in your profit margins. If you're if you're more efficient and productive and your staff are playing a role, you're going to see an increase. So it does take a little bit of bravery to just think ahead and plan ahead and make sure you're paying people right. But I, I promise you, it's it's not that it's easy to do. It's just that it is it is more doable than you would think. And then the results do pay off. Mm. We're speaking with Jillian Pierce. She is associated with Better Way Alliance, a spokesperson. And you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. So we've been talking about the idea of paying a fair wage, minimum of $15 an hour to employees and the benefits of that. Uh, Better, uh, Better, uh, Better Way Alliance uh, is also um, there to help support people. Is that true? How do you how do you help support in the, in this way and and what is it that 
that Better Way Alliance, you know, if you if you want to get involved with it, what 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 are the benefits? <laughs> Absolutely. So first of all, if you want to get involved, I would encourage you to check out our website, www.businesses415.ca. That's businesses415.ca. And that is a space where we can all come together to declare our support for a $15 minimum wage across Canada. And the way to get involved is to simply get in touch with me and say, I am a business owner. I either already support decent work for my employees or I'm thinking about transitioning to that model. Mm. Then I will join you up and you will have access to dozens of business owners across the province who are in a variety of sectors, um, whether it's retail services, manufacturing, the diversity is incredible. That, that network of business owners will then be able to help guide you through the transition. And then when you join us, we also promote each other as much as we possibly mm. can. We want each other to succeed. So we try to do referrals when we can. We try to drum up business for each other. It's just about being part of a movement and being part of a group that is doing something good for society, yes, but is also helping each other succeed. And it's sorely needed in a world in which some of the more established business groups are very anti-employee in their advocacy and are trying to tell all the media that all businesses agree with them. But it's really not true. So we're there as a group to say we're another side of the story. And hopefully in the meantime, we help each other up and we build our businesses into great successes. I had to laugh there when you said anti-employee. It's a an oxymoron right there if you're hiring people. Uh, I know. And it's maybe it's I don't know if it's a fair term, but I should say um, I should say that they tend to want fewer employee rights as 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 a default. Right. And lower wages. And we're more here to say the demands of of workers groups and our legislation aren't that crazy. In fact, they could be better for Mm. people and they're not going to hurt businesses. People thought that when the new minimum wage of 14 came into Ontario, it was supposed to be 15. It was canceled by the government. They thought that that would be bad for the economy. The opposite was true. It was completely fine, and our unemployment numbers remain very low. So... So there is there is a logic out there that if you are in business, you must also be fearful of employee rights. But that's not the case. In fact, you can embrace them and then everything is going to uh, work out better for you on the human resources side. Um, now, you mentioned that it's uh, it's province wide. You mentioned that there was some success out in Alberta. I don't know if that was uh, prior to our conversation beginning uh, the interview. Um, but you are, as you said, right across the province. You've got uh, support in many cities, uh, Toronto and Ottawa being a, another place that you said you have uh, lots of support. And I, I, the point I'm bringing that up for is that uh, as you were talking about joining and getting involved, uh, I guess the other thing is that you find out about these other local businesses that maybe you can rely on, turn to, uh, you know, maybe uh, become uh, uh, associated with in some way or other so you can support each other, et cetera, et cetera, turn to. Get information? Exactly. I love the fact that there are businesses in many different cities um, and that they span many different sectors. So you might say, oh, it's easy for you. You you ran a service company or, you you know, you're you're a young woman. What do you know? But the reality is the diversity in the group is incredible. So you have people who have been in business for 40 years. You have people who started up last year. You have 
large manufacturing, you have hundreds of employees, you have in one case thousands of employees, an insurance company that is a member, or you have two employees. The diversity is really incredible. Um, And we absolutely do refer business to each other and talk to each other. It's just really refreshing to know that there are others there who think alike. Um, sometimes being in business can be very isolating mm-hmm. and you can feel like you're in a silo mm-hmm. and you really are out there doing it for yourself and being very independent. So anytime you can, you can connect in with a community that, that agrees with you on these issues is really, really cool. Um, and of course we talk electronically most of the time. Sometimes we meet up or we talk on the phone, but usually mm-hmm. it's an email or mm-hmm. it's a Facebook chat that we have. And, uh, yep. Shout out to our Ottawa businesses for sure. We've got, uh, as two, two in particular are really vocal, if I'll just mention them real quick, um, Knifeware in Ottawa, which is a specialty knife store, they've got chain, a, they're a chain all over the country. They've been very supportive as well as a very cool bakery called Bread by Us that yeah, mm. some of your mis- listeners might know. <laughs> but there are literally dozens and dozens of, of, of very yeah. cool businesses. That's great. It's wonderful to hear. I, I want to uh, uh, mention the website once again because um, not only can you go there to find out information about joining and and uh, how you can connect. But uh, when you, you get to the uh, Businesses for 15, now that is a 1-5, by the way, businessesfor15.ca, and that will direct you over to the Better Way Alliance website. Now, when you get to that website, um, there are actual videos on that site that are examples of the kinds of things you're talking about with real business people telling their story about the and why they support, yes? Exactly. So we've got tons of videos about why we support decent work uh, and how it's possible and and how we believe that every Canadian deserves a $15 minimum wage. It's not too much to ask. And and we I was very encouraged. Yes, in Alberta. Yes, in Saskatchewan. Yes, in Ontario to see this movement across Canada. Uh, It's very exciting to see that. You've got Better Way Alliance folks. You've got Living Wage folks, B Corps folks. It's just a. It's you can just tell that right now is the time where people are going to stop thinking of small businesses as purely very anti-worker rights, and they're going to start thinking of businesses as um, a modern who are now embracing the idea of decent work as being good for business. Mm. So uh, I guess the other benefit that you might have if you if you're joining, um, and I'm I'm assuming this because at the at the end uh, on one of the pages of the website is uh, it shows um, all the businesses that have joined. Yes, so we are going to have a, a directory of businesses. So people have reached out to me from across the province saying, "I want to support as a consumer. I want to support decent work businesses. Where can I spend my money?" Mm. So we're developing a directory your business name, what you sell, your website link, your social media platforms. It goes on our website, and that is where people will be able to click and then support your business. Right. So there's a list of all the uh, – so you can go there if you're if you're thinking about this. You want to find out more. You want to see who maybe is involved already. Uh, you can go there. You see all their, their logos. They're all there, and I guess in, uh, they're all uh, – uh, connect so if you, you click on one of their website it takes you to their to their information. Jolene Pierce is uh, with Better Way Alliance spokesperson and it was kind of for her to come in and join us and talk about Better Way Alliance and you can check that out uh, once more online at businessesfor15.ca 
and that will take you to the Better Way Alliance page, and you can find out more about joining. And you can reach out to Jeline, as she mentioned earlier. Uh, is there something? Is there a specific email or something, or is it all on the web page? It's all on the web page. All my contact info is there. So if you just um, sign up and send us an email, we'll get you started. All right. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth and Element of FM. Don't go away.